Today, uh, we get to talk about wonder, about beauty. Have you ever, have you ever stopped to consider uh, how much of God's creation uh, exists simply for the sake of beauty? No other reason, just beauty. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to talk about that. We're in this series called uh, For the Life of the World. My microphone doesn't like me today, so I'm trying to get it on my ear. There we go. How's that? We're in this series called For the Life of the World, and uh, we're looking at what, does our, what is our salvation actually for? And that's exactly what it's for. It's for the life of the world. That yeah, you're saved to be with God for eternity if you've trusted Jesus Christ, to be saved from his wrath. But uh, you've been sent here to love people, to invite them to follow Jesus with you. And you're here for their good, for God's glory, for others' good, and for your joy. So in the meantime, until we're with him for eternity, God has sent us here for the life of the world, for the life even of our community and of, of our neighbors and of our, 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 our workmates and all of those that we come in contact with day in and day out. Well, we've looked at all the different economies of how God wants that to work out, all of his different plans and all of our small economies of of our life at home with our family and our life at work and, and order in, uh, in, in government and in society and, uh, and wisdom, living those things out in wisdom. But uh, the fact of the matter is that you can't ever and I can't ever really do that unless uh, we step back and find ourselves in wonder and in awe of God because that's when our souls are filled to be able to give goodness and joy and life to other people the way God designed us to. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. So why don't you pray with me? And then uh, we're going to open up uh, God's word. We're going to be in a few different places today. But we're going to look at at the whole, really a theology of beauty. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him. And Jesus, thanks uh, for your beauty. For the beauty of, of your work on the cross. The beauty of your resurrection. The beauty of your creation of all the things that we get to enjoy and experience. There's goodness and beauty in them, in and of themselves that you've put there. And uh, Lord, when we recognize that, it causes our hearts to, to, to stand in awe of you and in wonder of you. And that wonder transforms our lives. Would you do that today, Holy Spirit? Would you, uh, would you transform us with a, a new perspective of your wonder and your beauty? your splendor, your glory. Teach me even as I teach. Help me to communicate well. And Lord, uh, might we leave uh, rested and changed. And Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's my first question for you. Have you ever considered that, that God does a lot of things solely for the sake of beauty? God does certain things and has created certain things and even, we're going to see here in a minute, commanded certain things for no other reason than for the sake of glory and beauty. That's a pretty profound thing because I don't know about you, but uh, we live in a society and in a time where we want what's functional and utilitarian and we just want it to work and, and be simple and, and cheap and uh, save dollars and do what, you know, but God says, no, you know what? Some stuff is just for beauty, just for glory, 
for no other reason. And I would commend to you that God does something solely for the sake of beauty. Uh, His creation bears a certain beauty that reflects his ultimate beauty. Let me see if I can, uh, I don't know, see if I can illustrate this to you. Have you ever noticed that in, if, if you had the opportunity to travel the world, and even if you look in history books, whatever else, that in every culture, in every civilization, in every place around the world throughout all time, there's been a fascination among people with gemstones and precious metals and things of value. Not because they serve any utilitarian purpose, but simply because they're beautiful. Think about it. We're talking about things that are valuable to people, not because they can be eaten, right? Not because they can be used as a tool or serve, but, but simply because they serve as adornments. Uh, some of you have some in your home. Some of you have them on your finger right now. Tell me, what, what practical purpose does that ring hold on your finger? What does it do for you? Does it help you uh, accomplish some task during the week? No. Now, I'm not denying that there's, there's certain symbolism and sentimental value and all those things in it, but, but the reality is, when it boils down to it, the only reason you love it and like it, at the end of the day, comes down to beauty. And the, there's beauty there, yeah, and even if it reflects something else or symbolizes something else, its beauty is what's symbolizing that good thing if you're married, Right? Or maybe you have other jewelry at home or precious stones or metals or, or designs on your wall at home. Or uh, maybe you picked out the, the, the couch that you have because of the color of it, not so much even the function of it. Have you ever noticed that some things, are, they simply exist for beauty? And that's a good thing. In fact, that's God's design. Things that serve no functional utility, they still have beauty. And God made it that way. A simple observation from history points us to that fact. But you're like, okay, Josh, but um, you tell us all the time, what does the Bible say, right? Well, let's, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. Um, in fact, uh, maybe the most prominent example, and there are many in the Bible, of God creating and doing things simply for the sake of beauty, shows up in Exodus chapter 25 and following. And in Exodus chapter 25, you see God giving commands about the tabernacle. When when you get to Exodus 25, Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. He's been there. He's going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, what has happened in the previous six to eight weeks, so not a long time, is he's led the people out of Israel across the Red Sea. They've been wandering through the desert and they come to their first pit stop at Mount Sinai where God gives them instructions for how they're supposed to live once they get to the land that God had promised to Abraham. God's giving them instructions. And so Moses goes up the mountain and one of the things he receives is the Ten Commandments, right? It tells the people how they're supposed to live as God's people. And uh, four of those are how they live in relation to God. And the the last six are all in how they live in relation to one another. Um, But did you know that the bulk of the account, the vast majority of the account of God's time, uh, of Moses' time with God on Mount Sinai, is giving instructions for building a tent, called the tabernacle. That's the majority of what's written there. 
The tabernacle, if you're not familiar with with the Bible, that's okay. The tabernacle uh, was a tent. It was the first sanctuary that God ever commanded be built for him. The first sanctuary of God obviously was the Garden of Eden, but then he he commands Moses to create this tabernacle where he's gonna come and dwell among his people and be with them while they're uh, moving into the promised land. And in, in basic terms, it was basically, it was a mobile it was, a, it was a mobile worship center. It was a mobile church building. It was, it was a tent where they would worship in. It was to be used, it was, the, it was a tent, by the way, also, think about this, that was supposed to be used and set up and moved in a dusty, dry, arid desert. That's where this tent was gonna be. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I haven't, I've never, I confess, I've never made a tent, I've put up a tent. But I'm thinking, if, if I had to make a tent, um, it, it wouldn't take a lot of fancy supplies, would it? It takes some canvas. It takes some, uh, maybe some uh, poles of some sort, probably some rope, some stakes to drive into the ground. And, and that would, I don't know, can you think of anything else? Maybe some fasteners to hold things together, but nothing, nothing too fancy just to make a tent that works, right? That shades you from the sun, that keeps you out of the rain. Um, Yet the instructions that God gives for its design and construction are nothing short of astonishing in detail. I mean, unbelievable detail that he lays out. Did you know he gives precise measurements for every side of it, for every piece of furniture that goes in it? He, 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 he dictates it down to the colors and to uh, the types of material it's to be made of and the, what's to be embroidered on the canvas of the tent and the type of fabric that should be used. And, and all, he, it just, he goes into all these details. You know, the first time I read this passage, or one of the first times at least that I remember reading it, um, I never really started reading through the Bible until I was in college, at least certainly not the Old Testament anyway. And when I was in college, the first time I went to Iowa State and I studied architecture, and then I went to Moody Bible Institute right after that. And within about two weeks of my time at Moody, we were reading this passage, and it was right after the, the semester before at Iowa State, I had had this course in architecture history, in the history of architecture. And... Um, one of the things that uh, you learn in that class is that some of the greatest architects, some of the greatest designers are some of those that, that many would classify as absolutely obsessive, if not obsessive compulsive, and uh, just a little, a little bit on edge about all the detail they put into stuff. Like some of the best ones, the most renowned ones are the ones who pay the most attention to all the small details. Well, um, one example you've probably heard of. You heard of a guy named Frank Lloyd Wright? And here's a picture of one of the houses he designed. You may like him, you may not, but, but uh, anyone in, in architectural circles would tell you he's, he's prob- if not the greatest, one of the greatest architects in American history uh, because of some of the things that he accomplished. And his, his attention to detail is unbelievable. He was obsessive. If you would hire him to design your home, uh, you would get a questionnaire about 30 pages long about your lifestyle, how you planned and intended to live within this house, all the things that you could ever imagine about it. And there's some accounts, uh, actually a home in West Lafayette, the couple there, they were professors at Purdue and there's an account, you can go find it online probably, where, where it took them like three years to get this whole questionnaire complete to the satisfaction of Wright so that he would start designing their home. He was obsessive. And when he did get to designing, 
he didn't just stop with the shell and structure of the house. See, uh, I told you, the, some of the best architects are the ones who are just OCD about every little detail. And you're like, man, just give it a break, just rest. He, he wouldn't trust whoever bought his homes and bought his designs to, to carry on with the interior design within the home. So he would go ahead and design all the furniture most of the time. In some cases, he would go so far as to uh, determine all the colors on the wall, the color of the carpet, the upholstery of the furniture, and even down uh, to the plateware and drinkware, he would design it. And the idea would be that whoever got that house was required to live by all those designs that he put in place. In fact, some of his furniture he would actually build in so that they couldn't move it. He was obsessive. And so I got to Moody and I just studied this guy and I I get to Moody and uh, I start reading about God designing the tabernacle and I'm like, oh man, this is a lot like Frank Frank Lloyd Wright, but actually I think uh, Wright was uh, imaging God, not the other way around, right? And God's obsession with detail and not about someone's home, but about a tent in the desert, in the sand, in the dust, he was obsessive about the detail that went into it. God was, you know what he was doing? He was demanding beauty. Listen, there was no functional purpose for some of the things that he called for. No utilitarian, practical, pragmatic purpose for some of the things he threw in there. It was simply for the sake of beauty. In fact, I mean, if it, if it had been simply pragmatic, right? Uh, start reading with me. Look at, uh, look at chapter 25. It says, the Lord said to Moses, remember Moses is on Mount Sinai, He says, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. He's he's asking them to to take a contribution for the items that would build this tent. Now, if it was just going to be functional, just solely for utility, wouldn't you expect, uh, I'm going to need some rope. We're going to need a lot of canvas. We're going to need some long stakes. Uh, We might need some some metal of some sort to melt into rings. We're going to need all those things, right? But his list is totally different. He says, from every man whose heart moves him. By the way, that's just another good example. You see this over and over in scripture. God God doesn't want you to give unless you want to give. (laughs) He loves a cheerful giver. If you don't want to give, don't give. It'll be bad for you. Wait till God moves your heart to give. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And look, this is the contribution. It's not just canvas and rope and stakes. He says, uh, here's what you should receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twilled linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins. Goat skins, acacia wood. Oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones, stones for setting. For the ephod and for the breastplate. Be for the dress of the priests. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Well, uh, the next few chapters of Exodus, especially after you get to Exodus 31, details all of the design that God required and what he wanted in this tent. And when, uh, remember, it's a tent in the desert. Did I make that clear yet? 
Did you know that if you added up all of the gold that's listed that God creates or wants for the designs, like uh, pure golden candlesticks and all this other stuff, that if you added up the total amount of gold in today's dollars, it'd be about $38 million worth of gold for a tent and its furniture? You know what that tells me? God's interested interested not simply in the function of what's happening there, but in the beauty of it. Because the beauty of it reflects his glory. God creates and does certain things, friends, solely for the sake of beauty. For no other reason. Do you get that? Now, if you have an artistic bent, you can kind of maybe get this more clearly. But if if maybe you're more pragmatic and and you're like, oh, I don't know... Want me to show you more? Uh, Fast forward to Exodus chapter 28. In Exodus 28, uh, God is giving instructions then for what the priests are supposed to wear. And look at Exodus 28, starting in verse 2. He says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. And why should you make them? What's it say? Somebody, Somebody say that for me. What's it say? For glory and for beauty. You should make it for him for glory and for beauty. That word beauty can be translated for splendor. Why should Aaron dress nice? For the sake of my glory and for the sake of beauty. No other reason. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And then when you get to Exodus 31, fast forward a little further. Flip forward to Exodus 31. And then in following, we read about two people that God raised up with incredible skill to create beauty in the tabernacle. Two guys by the name of Bezalel and Oholiab. If you're expecting a child and you're looking for names, there you go. There's a couple creative guys in the Old Testament, Bezalel and Oholiab. But here's what the Lord said to Moses. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, son of of the tribe of Judah. And look at verse three. I've filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. You know, in, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38, Pharaoh makes a comment about Joseph where he calls him. He says, Joseph is a man who, whom clearly uh, the spirit of God is, is upon. But other than that, Bezalel is the first person to show up in scripture that, that says he is filled with God's spirit. In fact, it, it, he is the first person that God ever, ever declares he has filled him with the Holy Spirit. He's the first one who shows up in that way. Now, why would he fill him with his spirit? Surely, it's for some great ministry endeavor, right? I mean, he's going to serve in ministry. He's, he's going to be a pastor. He's going to be a preacher, right? That's, that's why God filled him with his spirit, isn't it? So he can go preach. No, so, so I know what it is. So he can be a missionary. So that he can be like the Billy Graham of his generation. That's why God filled him with the Spirit, right? Right? Look at the next verse. Look at why God filled him with the Spirit. To devise artistic designs. 
to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Friends, Bezalel, the first person we read about, whom God says, I filled with my spirit, he was filled with his spirit to do artistic designs. To what? To create beauty. The first person filled with the spirit is filled to create beauty. Listen, God does certain things solely for the sake of its beauty and of his glory. There's value in and of themselves. Their value in and of themselves is their beauty. This is really important to understand. R.C. Sproul talked a lot about this. He wrote a lot about it, in fact. And uh, he, just, he just went home to be with the Lord a few months ago. Um, and he would say that the Christian faith is like a three-legged stool. And those three legs are, are, are truth and goodness and beauty. And that we would all agree that, yeah, there's, there's, there's goodness and God is the standard of goodness. And as a Christian, we should live lives of goodness. And, and truth, clearly we fight for truth and God is the standard bearer of truth. But also he says, the problem is sometimes we live with a one or two legged stool. And because of that, we don't always worship him the way we should because we forget that the third leg is one of beauty. That some things God does simply for the sake of beauty and of glory. He's highly concerned about that which is beautiful. I wonder, think about, um, think about your work. You know, we've been talking about this series, you're in exile in this world, you're here to give life to the world. Have, have you ever considered beauty in your work or wonder? See, because this, this second point, we're drawn to God's beauty to behold it in wonder. Hold that thought for a moment. And uh, turn with me to Psalm 65. We're drawn to God's beauty to behold it in wonder. And there's beauty all around us. And it should cause us to have hearts of wonder and of awe toward God and his creation. Look at the psalmist writes, verse 1. We'll just read through this psalm together. He says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one, and now he's describing some of his works and his, the beauty of his creation, who, who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. I, you know, that's, that's one thing too. Like, of what value is a mountain other than oftentimes simply to look at it and behold its beauty and majesty and splendor that God put it there. It shows his strength. The one who, look at this, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Have you ever just looked at a sunset or even a sunrise? and beheld the beauty of it? God didn't have to do it that way, did he? He could have just done it like a light switch. 
light for a couple hours, you know, eight o'clock, lights out. But no, it's like this gradual beauty and the beauty of all creation and the splendor of everything we see. The, the, the palette of colors and imagine, even think for a second, the fact that the sky is a different color than the ground. The sky is blue, right? You know what the least common color of, of fruit or of foliage is or flowers? Blue. Why? Because in God's design that way, I think it would contrast well with the sky. And isn't it good that the sky and the, the predominant color of the earth is, is this uh, blue and green and it's calming and relaxing as opposed to, to red? What if the sky was just red all the time? We'd all be really grumpy and angry. We wouldn't know why. But God's in, God in his design laid all of these things out. He, he, he made the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You ever just said, hey, come out and check out this sunset. It's shouting for joy. You, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you've prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Friends, we could read multiple psalms this morning that all declare God's beauty and that all points us to God. He creates beauty so that we would uh, behold his beauty with the sense of awe, with the sense of wonder. When was the last time you slowed down and just beheld the glory and beauty of God in his creation? See, every longing of your heart, every great meal you've ever savored, every uh, great story you've ever told or heard, every piece of art you've ever beheld, every beautiful song you've ever listened to or sung, all of those, you know what they are? They're echoes of the glory and beauty and majesty and creativity of our God. How's an echo work? You go into a cave, right, and you yell, echo! You kind of have one in this room a little bit, right? And, and it comes bouncing back. And if it's a really good echo, you hear it really clear. It's like somebody's on the other end of the room talking to you, right? You're like, echo, echo. Oh, man, my twin's over there. That's what it sounds like, right? But then sometimes it's a faint echo, and it's just you kind of barely hear it. But in every case, it reflects back to what was being said. Well, I would commend to you that all beauty and all wonder and all creation, including the things that you and I and all of humanity creates, is an echo of the beauty and creativity and glory of God. Some are very clear echoes where they clearly speak of the glory and majesty of God's God. Others are faint echoes that, that ring, but ultimately they ring with this echo of God's beauty and majesty and glory. When we behold beauty, we're listening to an echo of the beauty of God. And our hearts can't help but be drawn toward him. How often do you engage in wonder? See, if you're going to live as an exile in this world to bless the world and bring life to the world, your heart needs to be filled with the wonder and majesty and awe of God. And you know what? 
to spend time in wonder of our awesome God, you know what you have to do? You have to be still and slow down or you'll miss it. To quote Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you're not careful, it might pass you by, right? Be still, the psalmist writes, and know that I am God. Be still. When you do, and you begin to wonder at God's creation and at his beauty, it instills peace in your heart, doesn't it? It allows you to pray. It begets humility. Uh, Wonder is like flavor is to food in terms of your heart. It just, it, it brings the majesty and glory of God about. Do you ever wonder, I mentioned earlier at your job or at what you do or just the, the circumstances of life? I was thinking uh, yesterday afternoon, just writing and thinking about things that create wonder. Hannah and I were talking a little bit about uh, one thing last summer, you know, when she had her surgery, we, we uh, lost our baby and she had to have emergency surgery and Uh, many of you have heard this story. She was rushed to the hospital in the ambulance and passed out in the ambulance and didn't know what was going to happen. I thought she was dying. And uh, they get there and the the doctor um, uh, does surgery. And we're talking afterwards like, how amazing is it that this woman who performed surgery on her had all of this knowledge over time that she had gained and gleaned from others? That, That God had chose to reveal the intricacies of the human body and how all of it works over time to this person to be able to perform this surgery, to, um, to, to cut her open, to, to restitch her uterus back together so that things would heal and all the beauty and majesty and wonder of that. How does that happen? Have you ever thought of that? And it caused this sense of awe and wonder and gratefulness for all those who had done their jobs well and studied well and and had found themselves in wonder and in awe of God's creation of the human body because all of that knowledge eventually trickled down to this one person and this group of people who operated on her. That's incredible wonder when you consider those things, isn't it? Imagine all that would have taken over time. I, I, was, I was talking to Darren on Friday. We had our workers' worship conference on Friday. And uh, many, uh, we had about 30 people here. Thank you for all those who helped with that. It was a great time and uh, really well received. I think we'll do it again next year. Um, but Darren and I were talking. I was asking him more about his job uh, selling planters and what their planters do. And Darren, you yell at me and correct me if I get this messed up, right? But, but I, I left there just like in awe of some of the technology there, like, that I didn't know. Like my, my experience with farming is when I was five years old and my dad was a farmer and then we about went bankrupt. And that was when, you know, you just go out, you plant the seed and you hope it grows. And that's about, that's about all there was to it. And uh, I'm simplifying it, but that's how it seemed to a five-year-old. But the technology that's come about, in the, even in, in recent years, he was describing to me this planter where uh, it scans the ground and uh, literally can place from seed to seed at a different depth with a different type of fertil- different amount of fertilizer, even type of fertilizer, so that it would grow to the best ability where it's planted all throughout this field. Did I get it right for the most part? Have you ever considered how amazing that is, the wonder of that? The wonder of science and the technology behind that? 
That, that, should, that, that just caused me to go, wow, that's amazing. How incredible that God has bestowed such knowledge to us to, to give that kind of creativity to allow something like that to happen. Um, not just the wonder that it can be accomplished, but how about the wonder of, the, of GPS allowing, you know, to know the precision of what spot you're at in the field or uh, the, the, the wonder of the mechanics of, of, of being able to accomplish all of these things and the sensors optically. Of how, how does that, I don't, that's amazing. Does that cause you to wonder? Does that cause you to step back in awe? If it does, it should point you ultimately to the glory and wonder and beauty of God. How about in your world? What is there that you just look at and you go, that's, that's incredible. What's, what wonder is there to be beheld in, in your work or in your life or in your home? Friends, we're wired to be drawn towards things that are beautiful and that are awesome and that, that create wonder and intrigue in our hearts and in our minds because it's, drawn, it, it's designed to draw us to God. But you have to slow down, and the Bible uses this word often, behold it. And here's what happens. As you recognize that there are certain things that, that God creates simply for the sake of beauty, and that as you behold those, be- that, those things in beauty and behold his beauty, it, it causes a sense of wonder and of awe in your heart. The truth of the matter is that that awe and that wonder then transforms you. That awe and that wonder transforms you. And the only way that it happens is when you be still and live a life, uh, uh, be, be still and allow your heart to, to wonder and stand in awe of God's beauty and even of the beauty of his created things, looking past the thing to the creator. If you stand in awe and wonder, it transforms you. Let me give you one case in point of scripture of of somebody being transformed by the awe of God's beauty. And it may not be the one even you're thinking of, but in Mark chapter 14, Mark writes, it was two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, uh, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. How could you waste all that money on that? There could have been so many good things done with it. But Jesus said, look at this. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Just like we did. (laughs) Do you know why I think she did that? It was clear that, that she wasn't concerned with the pragmatic use of what she had. She was more concerned with the beauty of Jesus Christ. And when she stood in awe of his beauty and in awe of the beauty of God, it transformed her to say, you know what? I can let go of this and I, I can just worship. 
Beholding God's beauty transforms you. This morning as we're closed, we're gonna spend, uh, uh, we, we jumped into the word quickly this morning and so we're gonna spend some extra time here at the end in song. And it's an invitation to you to, to be still, to, to, for the first song at least, we'll just remain seated, just to even listen to the words if you'd like to, to slow down, be still and, and, and stand in awe and wonder of who God is. And let him restore your soul. Be still and know that he is God. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and for your grace to us and your goodness and your beauty. Lord, the truth is that your beauty surrounds us in all of creation and in the things that you've created and in the things that, that people have created. Everything from, from art to buildings to technology to knowledge. Uh, Lord, there's so, so many things that declare your beauty and that cause us to stand in wonder and in awe. Holy Spirit, would you uh, allow our hearts to be still now? Whatever it is that we face this week or are facing in the coming week, to rest and, and sing about and declare and look upon your beauty with awe and with wonder for a few moments this morning. And might you transform us in that. In Jesus' name we pray.